every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flip the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. So welcome to the John Schultz podcast. We have a terrific guest today. I'm very excited. Uh, we have Julia Borston here and uh, senior media and technology correspondent at CNBC. Been an on-air reporter since 2006. Time flies. She plays a central role in the bi-coastal tech-focused uh, program, Tech Check, which I love. I love that show. I'm a, t I'm a tech junkie myself. And in 2013, created the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list of private companies transforming the economy. I always look forward to that list. Being in tech, it's very exciting to learn about all the new industries and companies that are uh, included. And then also a reporter from Fortune back when and a graduate of Princeton University. I'm a Jersey guy, so that's a very good thing to know. We, lo we love Princeton. So welcome, and we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. It is great to be here. I'm glad you're a, a watcher of CNBC. I love it. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite shows. I learn a lot, and 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 all the people that are the anchors, such as yourself, are 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 great at it. So we're very lucky to have you guys on TV. So being that this is the myth to overnight success, and we know life is long, as especially as we get older. Like when you were a kid, right? This is a question I always ask. Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, you know, some of your passions and thoughts on that. Well, when I was very little, I wanted to be a ballerina. So I wanted to be a ballet dancer, which is funny because, um, you know, now I'm an on-air reporter. And when I was making the transition from being a, a print magazine reporter to full-time on TV, my my then boss, uh, Mark Hoffman, who ran CNBC, he said, you know, do you have any experience on camera? Were you ever an actor, anything like that? And I was like, no, not really. I wasn't a good actor, but I did do dance very seriously when I was growing up. And it turns out that that wasn't just a hobby. It turns out that performing on stage in front of thousands of people is a great skill. So I would say, even though that was, you know, when I was six years old, I would have told you I was going to be a professional ballerina when I grew up, that that uh, that experience of, of doing that hobby turned out to serve me well later in life. But I would say as I got older, I always did journalism, but I didn't think I was going to be a professional journalist. I was really interested in international relations, interested in the law and in politics. Um, and I found myself continually drawn to journalism, working on the high school newspaper. I worked on the newspaper in college, um, but I didn't realize it was what I was going to do until I actually graduated. So what influence, I mean, writing's not easy. It's something, I mean, being a history major, obviously you read a lot, right? You're into all the stories of the past, but like, how did you get into writing? Well, so I have to say, I think it runs in my blood, uh, or at least it's something that everyone in my family has done. My grandfather was a historian. He wrote dozens of books, Daniel Borston, and I always was raised to, to understand that telling stories about real things that happened really matters. And um, he was famous for really taking these historical events and making them accessible and understandable in layperson's terms. You know, he, he wasn't writing for other history professors. He was writing 
for the public. So I grew up reading his books. My parents have both written books and I grew up in a house surrounded by books. So I read a ton and I loved reading magazines. I would come home from school when I was in junior high school and I would rush to the mailbox and open up and read whatever magazine arrived that day. And I don't know if you remember, but like Monday was Time Magazine. Yeah. Tuesday was The New Yorker. Each magazine arrived on a different day. And I would just sit there and read the magazines before I started my homework. So that was my routine. And I grew up sort of surrounded by articles and the newspaper in the morning and books at night. And it really was the way I was raised. And I always dreamed that someday, no matter what I did, whether I imagined being a lawyer or working in public policy, I always imagined that I would someday want to write a book. And then when I found this topic of this book, I knew this was the one that I had to write. So so it's funny. So dance, right? That's an expression of being in front of people and, and telling a story. Obviously, writing is that. And I, obviously, hearing this, you had lots of influence at home. But how do you, you know, writing, you know, again, I guess dance did help that. But how hard is it to actually get on air? I mean, I'm learning from this podcast. It's not it's not easy. Right. And actually get in front of millions of people, even though they're not there, but, you know, they're out there. How do you make a transition to do that? And what was the path that led you there to even avail you that opportunity? Well, that's a really good question. So I started off um, as a print magazine reporter. I was very lucky to get a job at Fortune Magazine right out of college. I had worked on the, the Daily Princetonian and it had a reputation as being a great daily college newspaper. And it sent a lot of people to go work in the magazine industry in New York at the time. So I had this great job and at the time, Fortune Magazine was owned by the same company as CNN. This was Time Warner back yeah. in 2000. So I wrote a story um, that CNN noticed and they wanted me to come on air and talk about it. And this was something that happened at the time pretty frequently. So they would call the reporter and say, hey, you want to come on and talk about your story? And I was 21 years old. I was very young when I, I went straight out of college to join Fortune. And they asked me to come on and talk about my story. And I was like, confused and and scared but i went how on how long I was cnn how long was that in when was this how long it was, was about that? a year into my into my time at uh less than a year into my time at fortune magazine so wow. after i've been there less than a year maybe i just turned 22 they asked me to come on cnn and talk about my story and i thought this was hilarious i didn't know enough to go on tv and talk to the public on live television but i right. thought it was so crazy that when i went on and did my interview I didn't look scared. I looked like I was having fun because I kind of thought it was wild that here I was on live television. So I had so much fun with it and wasn't freaked out by it that they said, you're comfortable, you should come back. And that turned into a regular TV gig on, on CNN and CNN headline news. So I was a fortune reporter. And because I was comfortable talking and answering questions and because I didn't get nervous, which one of my bosses was sure because I had this experience performing, doing dance, um, in high school and college, the fact that I didn't get nervous meant that I could establish this, this side business of appearing on CNN. And after doing that for about five years, so six years after I arrived at Fortune, then uh, CNBC offered me a full-time job. So I, I, um, so I appeared um, on CNN first to talk about a story I'd written. Yep. And then they said, she seems comfortable. She doesn't seem nervous. Let's have her back. And I started doing these frequent crosstalks where I would just ask, answer questions about the business news of the day. So eventually I had a segment called Street Life with Julia Borston about Wall Street talking about the business news of the day. Now that was very different from what I do now. That was answering questions. Now I write scripts. 
um, I anchor shows. So it's much, it's much different now, but it started off really just having conversations on TV. And your training as a dancer helped you do that. It's amazing how- Well, it made me comfortable performing, I guess, being on stage. No, uh, both my daughters are in dance and in, in the film and, and they want to be, uh, one wants to be on Broadway. So they had that training when they're young. They're really not afraid to get up in front of someone and actually- present themselves, which I think is one of the hardest things to get over, right? So, yeah, and by the way, maybe she won't end up being a Broadway star, but that skill of not being nervous doing public speaking or whatever that is will be a great asset. I totally agree. So then CNBC comes and, and, and how was that and how did that sort of uh, happen for you? So they saw me appearing on CNN. They invited me on to talk about some business stories. And I I came on a couple of times and they said, hey, you're good at this. Do you want to come and be a reporter full time on television? And but keep in mind, talk about not an overnight success. This was five years after I started appearing on CNN. So five years of being a contributor, they thought, hey, you should try this as a full time thing. So it had never really occurred to me that I should leave my amazing job at the magazine world. Though, of course, now looking back at it, the magazine world has gone through so many challenges and the TV world has been much more robust um, and able to, to weather different uh, economic downturns. But so at the time I thought, okay, well, I never really occurred to me, but I should go talk to them. So um, I figured after six years, it was time to, at Fortune, it was time to try something new. And I made the jump. I made the leap over to CNBC and it was a totally different experience. Writing magazine articles and then chit-chatting on TV and answering questions is very different than the main thing that I do, which is report out scripts and write 90 second or two minute long scripts with visual elements and sound bites. It's a totally different um, process. Yes. Even though it's all about journalism and asking questions, the process is very different. So that's, but you're moving on, right? And so what got you into media and technology? Uh, like, like, how did you end up in that direction uh, on CNBC? So on CNBC, they hired me first as a general assignment reporter. And I had done some articles at, at Fortune as a general reporter. I had done profiles of personalities like the founder of Whole Foods, John Mackey, or in the retail space, I did something on Mickey Drexler, who is the J. Crew impresario. So a lot of different big personalities, but it happened that I had done a couple of stories about Hollywood. I did some stories about, about Disney and Warner Brothers. Um, and it happened that I grew up in Los Angeles. So I was familiar with the, with the entertainment world. So when they hired me after about six months of being a general reporter, they said, hey, we have these two spots to, to fill. You can either cover media or you could cover retail. And I thought media is so exciting. There's so much going on right now. There's YouTube, there's Netflix. And I was already seeing the growth of Facebook, which CNBC didn't really care about the time because it was so young and new. But I said, I want to cover these new platforms that are ad supported like Facebook and Twitter. And I thought media is fast changing. I would love to cover media. Um, and I'd already been doing a lot in that space. So I said yes to media, yes to moving to Los Angeles. And then media grew to social media as well. And then to technology. And increasingly, all of these different fields have really converged, whether it's Apple, um, you know, with Apple TV Plus and the growing services business, or the fact that Amazon <laughs> is playing NFL games. And of course, I cover the sports industry through the the, the media angle of it. So all of these worlds have collided and it naturally happened over years to go just from media 
to media and social media, to media, social media, technology. All these industries are competing with each other. They're frenemies. And, um, and it's been fascinating covering the evolution of these businesses. You, you've really been there since the beginning. I mean, and it, it, it's not that old though, right? I mean, it is only 15, 16, 18 years max. So you've seen it from like when Facebook was this really small little company. Yeah. So what has surprised you the most from that time back where Facebook's really, no one even knows who they are to where we are today? I mean, I was giving even a question. Do you still read like hard copy magazines? Like <laughs> I love magazines. I have a stack <laughs> around here. I still have a snack right here. Um, I do love hard copy copies of magazines. Um, oh, but um, what's been most amazing to me is how powerful these tech companies are. Whether it's Google, which now has like Alphabet has like the equivalent of five different public companies within it, whether it's the cloud business or YouTube, or the fact that, Meta was accused of really, you know, transforming what happened in the 2016 election. You know, whatever you think about that particular incident, there's no question that these platforms, whether it's Meta or Twitter or Alphabet, have immense power and impact on not just on business, but also on society and culture. So, for instance, like Netflix, Netflix was transforming the way people consumed content. But then the next thing you know, this, this this disruptor is forcing all the established media companies to get into the Netflix business. And that's changing the uh, that's changing the, the theatrical movie going business as well. So just the massive power and impact of what these companies have done is mind boggling to me. And and not a day goes by that there isn't something exciting in this space. So I feel so lucky to be able to cover such a dynamic industry. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I, I'm a movie freak. I love entertainment. I mean, I love what you do. I, I, I love entertainment. I love technology. I remember like going to Blockbuster and enjoying that drive, right? And walking the aisles to then when Netflix had the CD, which I thought was a bit of a pain, right? You had to go bring it back to all of a sudden the streaming thing. And it, it's incredible. I mean, mobility it just catapulted all of this stuff. And, our, you know, the one thing, yeah, this is all free, right? Like sign up for free, you know, here's free yeah, content. Yeah. We know obviously they wanted our data and we've learned so much since then about that, which is crazy. But all right, so here you are, you're you're, you're going through like all happenstance, you're, you know, the, it's, it's, it sounds like so much fun. But what I would this, say is not happenstance. One thing leads to another. Yes. One story leads to another story, which leads to me being a, a more of an expert in the space, which leads to media, which leads, to, you know, so I feel like not happenstance, but more these doors that open. If you walk through them, there's going to be another door that leads you down that path. And just keep moving, right? Yeah. Like, because we really don't know until it, until it's there. So then how did you create this disrupt? I mean, because obviously you're in the middle of it. You were there from the beginning. This disruptor list idea. Like, I think it's brilliant because I think it showcases companies and with technology moving so fast, someone aggregating the data for us to actually see like what we should be looking at. So important. How did that come about? Well, it actually came from covering Facebook. I was so interested in Facebook as this brand new company. My brother was in college when Facebook launched and I was hearing about it from him and what he was getting access to. And I thought, this is fascinating. And then when Facebook went public, I thought, you know, I've been covering Facebook leading up to the IPO, but our, our viewers, CNBC's audience, they're investors and they care about the business world. They need to really understand these companies long before they go public. And they need to understand how upstarts, disruptors like, 
like Facebook or Twitter or SpaceX or many or Uber or Airbnb, they under need to understand the impact they're having long before they're public. Because those companies that were private and were on our Disruptor 50 list, they either were going to become the giants and behemoths that are publicly traded and people can invest in, or they're disrupting the giants and behemoths and changing the way they do business. So the experience of covering the Facebook IPO made me think we need to have a structure and a system to introduce these companies to our audience earlier on and really look at how technology, back to technology, is is being deployed in all of these different sectors, whether it's the education sector or the transportation sector. What are the startups that are using technology to, to change the game and challenge the status quo? That was what I was interested in. And that prompted the creation of the Disruptor 50 list, which is interesting because that then inspired the book that I just wrote. And how do you, what do you pitch it to the network? And it's like a whole new like idea. How, how does that work? Well, so I remembered from my days at Fortune Magazine that everybody loves a list. People love lists. They love to rank things. They love big numbers, whether it's 50 or 10. Obviously, Fortune has the Fortune right. 500. We did the 40 under 40 list when I was at Fortune. So I remember people love a list. And I thought we need to figure out a structure to cover these startups in a language that makes sense for our viewers, which is, what are the public companies they're disrupting and putting it in that format? So I went into my boss's office. I sat down. I said, I have, a, I have an idea for you. And I think I probably pitched him three ideas because I was always pitching ideas. And he said, you know what? That disruptor list is a really good idea. Let's try it out. Every year since, and so it's been 10 years. Every year since then, um, our, our algorithms have gotten more sophisticated. We have an advisory board of amazing academics and experts who help us with the criteria. It's a blend of quantitative and qualitative. It's an amazing process. And I now have so many people at CNBC working on it with me. I have a great um, a great team that I work with on this, but it's really evolved. And um, and every year I think it's more interesting and brings more value to our And viewers. it's important because you know these are companies that need to raise money and grow. And awareness is very critical, right? And really understand and having someone vetting what they are is critical, right? Because you never really know until you get under the hood. So that that's terrific, and we love that. That's uh, that's good for you. So would you say that was your proudest accomplishment? Like, what what what's your proudest accomplishment so far? Well, so far it's been writing this book, which is All coming right. out. But up until then, I think it was working on the Disruptor 50 list. And then I also helped create a franchise, which is not a list. It's not as distinct. But this idea that CNBC should be covering people and companies that, that close gender and diversity gaps. So we created this franchise called Closing the Gap. And there's so many amazing stories, whether it's Salesforce or PayPal, taking steps to eliminate pay and promotion gaps and really understanding how to use data to create a more equitable workforce and also understanding the value that they get from that. So I was really struck by some of the data I was seeing about gender gaps. And there was this one number that kept on sticking out to me. And that was that female founders last year, it was got less than 2% of all venture capital funding. But over the past 10 years, female startup founders have gotten 3% or less of all VC funding. So I was looking at that stat and the stat is so crazy, 3%, 3%. And then I was interviewing these amazing founders for the Disruptor 50 list and the female CEOs were particularly impressive. And I thought, of course, these women are impressive. They are by definitions, exceptions to the rule. They are exceptional. So I thought, I, I was so curious, how do they do it? How do these women manage to defy those odds? And I was thinking about all these innovative trends 
and the leadership characteristics of the people who had managed to grow and scale amazing startups. And then I was thinking about those statistics about how few um, women have access to that kind of capital compared to men. And I thought, aha, this is my book. I've always wanted to write a book, but I really want to figure this out. How did those women manage to defy those odds? So to your point about how there's no such thing as overnight success, it was like my entire career had added up to all of these data points that said, okay, this is a book that taps into all of these different things you're interested in, innovation, leadership, the value of, of, of equity in, in the workplace. And that inspired me to write the book. So all of well, the, you, the list and all these things added up together. And it all got you ready, which is true. I mean, I, and I love your passion on all the stuff you're doing, but I could tell this book is going to be your biggest passion and your biggest accomplishment. And it's women, uh, when women lead, right? It's available for pre-order, which everyone should. So let, let's talk about this. Obviously, this is a culmination of a lot of data and research and just questions in your mind, why, right? You always need that why question. So why don't you give a little brief overview of the book, you know, why you wrote it and, you know, where do you think this, what, what do you think this will do for, for people reading it? Well, so I, you know, I, I was so interested in this idea of innovative leadership, so struck by how these women had managed to defy those crazy odds. I said, I want to figure out how they did it because I'm not an entrepreneur myself. I'm very risk averse. I've only had two jobs in my whole career, but I thought if I could figure out how these women had managed to defy those odds, those must be leadership ca characteristics that would be valuable for everyone. Yes. And at the same time, I was seeing that there are so many different types of leaders. You know, we have this, this archetype in, in movies and in Hollywood and even in business that there's one type of leader, it's a guy in a suit or a dude in Silicon Valley in a hoodie. Right, and these, right. these stereotypes are usually white men. And what I saw in my experience is that wasn't true at all. There are all sorts of different types of leaders and innovative leaders, and they were leading in all sorts of different ways. I remember once I was doing a Disruptor 50 interview with the, the CEO of a company, she was a woman named Jennifer Holmgren, who runs a company called Lanza Tech. And they have a technology, a biotechnology actually, that turns pollution into fuel. Now, this is an amazing technology. I saw the demos, I was in Chicago in their lab and I was just, my mind was blown. And I was yeah. particularly struck by the fact that the founder, the CEO who's showing me this, she was actually not the founder, but the CEO who's showing me this, she's an introvert. She said, I am an introvert. The hardest thing I've ever done is get up and raise VC money in front of a bunch of man, men. She's like, I do not like public speaking. It is not my expertise. She said, but I figured out how to use that to my advantage. And I thought, here is this woman who is a Colombian immigrant, who is a self-professed introvert, who has scaled this massive company. She's made deals with Richard Branson to create jet fuel for Virgin Atlantic. And yet she's an introvert. She doesn't look anything like the stereotype of male leadership. I thought, how has she used her preference to listen rather than speak as a massive advantage? So I, I decided I was gonna write this book. I went back and I called up a number of the, the women who I had been inspired by over the years and also a bunch of VC investors. And I said, tell me about the most amazing women you found funded or you've met who you think have interesting stories and lessons that we could take from them. So I, I went to people like Jennifer Holmgren. I said, tell me your story. Tell me your story. And uh, and then she would talk about how she used her preference to listen rather than to speak as a way to figure out how to be a better negotiator. She said, a lot of people are so busy getting out there, making their pitch. They're not actually understanding what their counterparty really needs. 
So she had this strategy of really listening, using that data collection and saving the thing that she wanted to speak up about for when it was really essential. And then she found she was better able to negotiate deals because she could really relate to what her counterparty wanted. So it was things like that that inspired me to then go find academic data. What's the data about men and women in speaking? It turns out that not only do men speak more, but women are perceived as speaking more than they actually do. So there's so much fascinating academic research about men and women in leadership. And what I found is that not only are some of these characteristics that women are more likely to use incredibly valuable in business, but they would be valuable for everyone, male right. and female. Yes. So I think it's really now is the time, now more than ever, there's so much economic uncertainty to break free from the archetypes of like what it means to be a good leader and adopt some of these other characteristics, whether it's um, an ability to, to prioritize listening over speaking or communal leadership, the ability to br bring together diverse teams and bring out the best of them. I just think that in all my years studying leadership, the one thing that has struck me more than anything else is all sorts of different leadership types can work. And the more people can lean into their own instinct and their own preferences and abilities, the more successful they'll be. Yeah, so I believe that we all have 24 character traits, right? There's tests that you can take to actually mm -hmm. see where they fit in line with your personality. And I feel you have to, like, you don't hire a quarterback to kick field, goal, field goals, right? So if you understand your character traits, you know how and what your strengths are. You'll, you're going to stick around longer for it, right? And you're going to actually, that's going to be how you lead. That doesn't mean it's the right way to lead or there's not... 20 other traits that, you know, you may not be as good at, but they're, everyone's going to have different traits. Blending those together with everyone, I think is what makes a great company. And if you look at any leader, regardless, like there's always one or two or three of them, right? So, you know, even though you see Steve Jobs out there, there was, you know, someone behind Steve or with Steve or any other uh, company that's led by one or two or three people. So, so what, what would you say was the most interesting thing? Because each one of these could be a book in itself, like each person. What were some of the more interesting traits you felt you found? Well, I would say the, the biggest and most overwhelming um, takeaway that I had ties into the idea of it not being an overnight success. I went into this book so inspired by these women, excited to talk to the ones I had already interviewed, um, so curious about the ones I had heard about from other people. And I figured these women were born leaders. They were born with these amazing characteristics, this ability to, to gather people, come up with, with inspirational ideas. And the thing that was universally true was not their leadership characteristics. People lead in all sorts of different ways. But the fact that each one of them had to improve upon their approach. And no one was born an overnight success. I always joke, it's like the way that there's this image of Mark Zuckerberg emerging fully formed, you know, dropping out of Harvard, ready to create Facebook. None of these women was born an amazing leader. None of these women were even born able to harness their innate talents and traits. One thing they all had in common is actually something that explains why female athletes are more likely to be leaders. And that is an ability to benchmark their, their progress and push themselves to improve. They each push themselves to make progress uh, as, as a leader. And uh, whether it was figuring out a more effective way to run a meeting because they were an introvert and didn't wanna be talking the whole time and they wanted to make sure other introverts could share their point of view as well, or 
the idea of saying like, I'm really good at organizing teams, but let me figure out how to get even better and take that to the next level. Everyone can make progress on the things that they want to and that they put their mind to. And that was so inspiring for me because I'm not, I'm not a CEO or an innovator, but I know now having seen all these women that whatever it is I want to get better at, I will be able to, if I create systems to measure and benchmark my progress. You are an innovator. I'm not letting you get away with that. You created this, this disruptor 50. I mean, like you innovated in your, in where you are. Like In my own saying, way, like, in my, I'm right. nothing like these amazing women in my book, but they inspire uh, me every day. Exactly. I mean, listen, even at all companies, right? You, you don't have to own the company or even be the leader to innovate and create, you know, something good for, for what you're doing each day. So what would you tell, you know, obviously different generations, you know, are, you know, they grow up differently, right? We all have different things. We, we take for granted a lot of things. COVID changed a little bit of that. What would you tell the younger generation uh, besides reading your book, which they all should do? Like what some advice you would give them uh, with what all you learned with the, all this research? I would say um, I've been impressed by how many of the women in the book gained massive experience, not from doing the thing that was their dream, but trying to solve the problem right in front of them. So I think that, you know, our society celebrates moonshots and crazy dreams and crazy aspirations, but sometimes something as simple as saying, we need to reduce food waste. And maybe there's a big business opportunity in doing that. And maybe the food waste business isn't sexy, but it could be incredibly lucrative. And I think about um, this woman, Christine Mosley, who is the CEO of Full Harvest, and she had been working at a fancy organic juice company. And she said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life creating $13 juices. How can I do that? And the solution was, was not in, in reinventing the wheel, but it was saying, let's actually get to the root of the problem. So I think my advice for young people would be, think about what inspires you and what makes you excited to solve a problem or to get to work every day because doing anything is hard. Founding a business is hard, working at a business is hard, but if you can feel a particular connection to the purpose of what you're doing, like say at a company that's gonna reduce food waste or improve healthcare, then it's gonna be easier for you to get out of bed in the morning and get into work or keep pursuing your, your startup. So I think finding something you believe in, but also thinking about problem solving for something that's right in front of you that you feel a personal connection to. Right. And you could, I guess, do that where you're working, right? And also yeah. have a side hustle that you, you know, do things and create other opportunities for yourself. Because uh, I do feel like because technology and just the ADD of quick changes and in, in information that a lot of the younger people don't always feel, it takes long. It takes a long time to actually get to where you have to go. So did you find that that was an essential, that was an essential part of, of the message? I feel like the companies which have an additional purpose, those founders seem particularly willing to press through the hardest times. And there's a lot of data about how purpose-driven companies can be more efficient, uh, more successful over the long run. And I just think looking at the challenges of everything that we're dealing with, having an additional purpose can really get you to the next level. Um, and then I think also this idea of proximity. What are, What is the problem you're proximate to? Um, and for young people who want to want to do something entrepreneurial, I do think there's an opportunity to be entrepreneurial, even at big established companies. 
Um, and just to think what you have the best shot at having an impact at, because it may not seem like the thing that's going to make the most money right out of the gate might not be the sexiest thing, but if you have a particular connection to a problem, you're going to be better equipped to solve it. And that will in turn be more successful over the long run. I love it. So we want everyone to buy this book. We want it to be pre-ordered, right? So you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Where can you find it? You can buy, you can find all of this information about the book on my website, juliaborston.com. You can pre-order the book um, from Amazon, from bookshop.org, from your local bookseller, um, Barnes and Noble. It's everywhere. And I hope people enjoy it. I think they will. I think they will. I, I'm, I'm excited to get it myself. Uh, your passion's infectious. You can tell that you really love this project. And that's the, that's the fun part, right? Actually, the journey getting there, right? Now it's... A, you did it, but now you can you can you know, let everyone enjoy what you went through on your journey. So thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, everyone's going to love uh, hearing from you. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right.